Genesis chapter 14. And I was going to have someone read that, but I thought, that's kind of mean. And when you go through and look at uh, chapter 14, you'll see what I mean. But uh, looking at the... Today, the message is entitled, God Fulfills His Promises. Isn't that great? There's some people who give promises and don't keep them. Uh, we know our government, you know, promises, or politics, you know. Someone said politics is uh, so fitting. Poly meaning many and ticks meaning blood sucking. But uh, politics. But let's go closer to home. Not only in government, in our own families. In our, in our um, jobs sometimes. Those, they give promises. And we just can't keep them. But yet God fulfills his promises. And that's what they are. They truly will be kept. But uh, Genesis chapter 14. And uh, actually we'll be reading uh, this one from the Holman Christian. Genesis chapter 14. And then we'll also be looking some at the new uh, King James as well. But Genesis chapter 14. In those days, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariach, king of Elisar, Cherdolomar, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Golem, waged war against Barah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemabar, king of Zobium, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the valley of Siddam, that is the Dead Sea. They were subject to uh, Shedolomar for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Shedolomar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavekiriathim, and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as Elparan by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade Enmishvat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated all the territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in the Hezan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the, king, in the valley of Siddam against Sherdolomar, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goam, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Great context. Now the valley of Siddam contained many asphalt pits and as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Anar. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. Then Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner. He assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, attacked them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and other people. After Abram returned from defeating Shadolomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, 
Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And I give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. When the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to Yahweh, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. Shall we pray to begin? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it gives. I just pray that you might guide us and help us to understand uh, your text. And we just praise you because you have truly kept your promises throughout generations, and you will keep those promises. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen. So now aren't you thankful you didn't have to read that? Maybe I could have asked you to go through. And some of them we don't know the uh, specific pronunciations. In English, we often place the emphasis on the first, but sometimes in others, uh, it just depends on the emphasis. And so if you say Abram or Abram or um, some of the others, Shinar, Shinar, Ariak, some of them we don't know, but some of them we do. But uh, uh, we are grateful that uh, we don't have to go through and have a test on them. <laughs> but as we look at this is interesting because in this historical narrative, there's some background. And I was thinking I'm thankful that uh, some of the names, there are a lot of creative spelling with names even um, today we, um, in t modern context. There was a, a young girl whose name was... Um, named after Lord of the Rings, and it was A-O, I forget, what, what was the name? Eowyn, Eowyn, and so it's like, oh boy, that'd be quite the spelling, so, but that is how it is today, and there's different spellings and pronunciations, and especially cultural, and so uh, it is challenging, but here we have in the culture of the, in Canaan and in the East, we have these kings, so the background presents four kings of the East come to war against five kings of Canaan, so go ahead and advance that slide and so kind of give you a presentation look at that and I'm sorry the font is small I was going to have the arrows come in and kind of confront one another just to have a battlefield line but there you can kind of see you have the the four kings of Amraphel who was the king of Shinar, Ariok the king of Elisar or Assyria, um, Shadolomar was the king of Elam the modern Iran and uh, Tidal or Tidal as we would pronounce it king of Goiam Hittites, and Turkey. And so they're coming from the east. And so think as we think of the nation of Israel, you have there in the area, I mean, Bera, who is the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, um, Sh um, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and then there's another, we don't know his name, who's the king of uh, Bela, or Zoar. And so just, and here, that's chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. That's kind of the context. So we have a battleground. And those of you who like battles or, or war scenes, that's what is being confronted as we see what is taking place. But in verse 5 through 7, it describes the exploits and route of the conquest. So it just doesn't say that they showed up. They came from their own prospective countries and areas, which would have been smaller. When we think of a king, you know, we think of large, huge areas of land. But they came from their small prospective areas, and they took over and were defeating some of these other smaller tribes and areas. And we see here in verse 5 through 7, 
the route of their conquest as they defeated Rephium and um, the Horites in the mountains and as far as El Paran in the wilderness. And then they came to invade um, En Mishvat, Kadesh, and they defeated all the territory of the Malachites. And they're coming and arriving. And then they're confronted, and they are confronting these kings here, these five kings that go out to battle. So in verses 8 through 12, we have the battle of the four kings versus the east, the five kings of Canaan, and then their subsequent defeat. And uh, what occurs is that all of a sudden in verse 14 through 13, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 13, now we have Abraham. As you know, Abraham, or, or Abram, or Abram, he comes into the setting. So what we he have here is a narrative that is taking place that explains a little bit of a story. But how does that apply to us as we look at? First of all, we see here in verse 13 of Abraham. It's told by the survivor. It's identified. He identifies Abram as an outsider. Remember, this was the land of Canaan and that area, and he identifies Abraham as an outsider. In verse 13, he says, One of the survivors came and told Abram, um, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite. There's a distinction made. He isn't from there. He's settled there, but he is the Hebrew. And, and also, we see here is that he had an alliance with the people. The reason they, they talked to him, because he was influential in the area. He was strong. And even earlier in other areas, he was called a king. If you have 318 trained men in your household, you would think, oh, that's a lot. And these were trained men. These are men who obviously had military training. They weren't just servants. There probably would have been others as well. So imagine if you're in charge of a small community uh, uh, of, say, 500 people. You know, boy, that would be something. You would have to pay for a lot of bills, figure out where they have to live, what they would do. I mean, you may have trouble with five people in your home. Imagine 500. You'd be like, okay, this is a compound. But here, Abram was well off. He was rich. So we must not forget that. Sometimes we think back in the Old Testament and we think that they, they weren't trained. They were living um, just as we see those who are nomadic, but they, they weren't very educated. They weren't very intelligent. Just like sometimes in other countries, sometimes we think, oh, they're not as intelligent as those in the United States. But yet there are. They are. And so we can't have that mindset. So when we approach the biblical text, we see here the influence of Abraham, and he went before Pharaoh, remember, kings. And so he's identified as an outsider, had an alliance with the people. And then chapter 14, verse 14 through 16, it states, verse 14 through 16, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, his brother, or as we know, his relative, using that term, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in the house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he set his servants, and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the men and the people. Sometimes we hear that word servants and we're thinking, okay, they probably had kitchen knives and they had maybe a um, you know, spatula in one hand and they're fighting. No. And it's important because as we look at the text, these were trained men soldiers. And what was available at that time? Metal. And we talked about it earlier before, what have, would have been available in that land. But these were specifically, the Bible gives us that they were 318 trained men skilled as soldiers. 
But the first thing we learn is that Abraham, Abram, or Abraham, I, you may hear me call him either, but he has a relative who is taken captive. And the question this morning I give to you is, what is his response? How does he trust God? How is this a, a fact that God keeps his promises? First of all, he trusts God, that Abraham trusts God to fulfill his promises. As we look back in chapter 12, it says, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you or treat you with contempt. And so he goes out, and, and we must not lose sight of the fact that he goes out to help a relative, a family member, a loved one. But understand that he was still under the promises of God, that he just didn't go out flippantly like, oh, I'm going to put myself in harm's way. But we must understand that uh, as we look at this first concept is that Abraham trusts God to fulfill his promise. What is the promise? That he would protect him. He's going out in battle. And it's not like, oh, I'm invincible, I'm Superman because God has given me this promise. Hey, I'm going to have loved ones. I truly believe that there was a, a, an issue that he would have recognized and said, you know what, God, consider what God has, and he goes out and trusts God to protect him. So he goes out and with these 318 soldiers. And I always thought, what is the significance? I don't know if you're like me, but I like to kind of ask questions and even simple things. 318, why not 317? Why not 300? But the text says specifically 318. Now, I know sometimes there are generalizations where you have sometimes where it says a number 575, and, and it's a generalization. Someone may use a different number because they were only talking about soldiers or men. And so whether you, you say more than 100 or less than 1,000, you know, they're still correct biblically. But here it says 318, and as I was doing some research, um, there's a couple commentators they like to kind of discuss, and these are things they just gravitate toward. Oh, 318, there must be some significance. And so one person says, in chapter 15, as we get to it, when Eliezer is sent out, in Hebrew, the numerical equivalent to 318, Aleph is 1, Lamad is 30, Yad, the, as if you were to spell out Eliezer, um, and in the Hebrew, Yad is equals 10, um, Ayin is 70, Zion is 7, Resh is 200. So if you take those letters and the numerical equivalents, they equal 318. Well, that's kind of neat, you know. Or in the early church, what the scholars tried to connect with the Greek, because 18, if you think of 118 um, and 1i and the H, who are the first two letters of the name of Jesus in Greek, and the 300, you could look at it as a picture of a cross. T, which is 300. So it's like, oh, they try to see the significance in there. Oh, is there, is there meaning there? And one person said, well, it's symbolic rather than historical. This guy, S. Skirvitz, proposed the application of prime numbers. Any mathematic fans out there? What is a prime number? You're like, I had math back in high school. Don't bring it up again. Yes? Right, it's only divisible by itself. And so here you have up there. So when you think about it, is it has no other uh, numbers that we'll divide into. If you think of four, four can be divided by two um, and uh, by four, one time. Whereas a prime number, and I gave you up there the sequence. Thank you, Riley. And uh, it has 7, 11, 13, 17. If you tried to 
do division, you know, it's only one times seven. There's no other numbers that you can divide into these numbers. So you go through. But if you add up all those numbers to 47, you get 318. So it's just a little math facts. But that's what some have looked at and said, is there any significance to 318? I spend time on that just simply to tell you, I don't know. <laughs> you know? But it's there. It's in, that, at least that one is a text. And there's some interesting ideas because, you know, God, the meaning of that, the symbolism versus prime numbers, you know, if you look at some of the laws in, as we look at in math and science, and they corroborate. But uh, understanding that it may be, but I don't see any significance in there and just that, but God is behind that looking at that. But similarity, but what I do view, as I look at this story, I see a similarity to another biblical story. And that biblical story is Gideon and the Midianites in, in uh, Judges 7. If you remember Judges 7, here you have Gideon. And um, in the book of Judges, Gideon is supposed to take um, and fight against the Midianites. But he's always testing God. God, I don't know if I can do it. And he says, okay, here's all these men who come. And then he sequentially starts to separate. And pretty soon he's down to like 300. The men who, who cup up the water instead of getting down like a dog on all fours. Because what will happen is Israel will say that it was the men and not God who won the battle. But, they, but if you remember the story in Gideon, he approaches at night, and he still is unsure if he's going to win. Finally, one of the scouts says, oh, I had this dream about Gideon, and this came rolling down the hill and defeated us. And finally, all of a sudden, he's got the boldness. So if you think about your ever one wavering in the faith and always need that reassurance, even Thomas gets, gets flack for doubting. We're human. We are going to doubt. But the blessing is that God often reassures us through many different ways. But don't keep pressing on because there's going to come to a point that you will um, go beyond that. But understand that we have all that we need sufficient. And looking at these examples. But here we have a battle at night that takes place. And here... Abram takes his trained servants and goes through and attacks at night. And you go back to the text, and it says, Attack them and pursue them as far as Hobah in the north of Damascus. And as we look at this, understanding is that it was God who gave victory. These were trained men, 318. They attacked in a different way. And Abraham, he would have been the one who kind of was a general and, and planned out the attack. But ultimately, it was God who fulfilled his promise and protected and de gave deliverance. And the earlier promise that God would curse those that curse him, as we even know the fulfillment of when they were down at, um, in the land of Egypt with Pharaoh. But here it is fulfilled in battle by those who took Lot. And so God is there. And we, so even in victory in battle, we understand that it, it was God. And go ahead and advance that slide. Is God is the one who fulfills his promise to Abraham. He fulfilled it. And so the first thing we see as we look at is verse 17 through 20. So now the context is they're coming back from battle, and they've defeated everyone, they've recovered everything. And it doesn't give us any details, just at night, that they defeated them. And they would have been unsuspecting of a counterattack. And so they were in pursuit, and uh, they end up, defeating, and, and they're on their way back. And all of a sudden, we see this. At, it says in verse 17, After Abram returned from defeating Shadolamar, 
and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. So as we look at the text, where was the king of Sodom before? Do you remember what happened to Sodom in the original battle? A little bit of teaching in there, but as you look at what, what happened? He fled, and wh where was he? Do you remember what it says? It says that uh, as, as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the mountains. So he was either in one of the asphalt pits, or he was in the mountains. <laughs> but as they come back, and uh, as they're recovering, you know, he's presented, and he still was the king, but, but here you have introduces the character of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or would have been our time Jerusalem. Brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed them. And says, Abraham is blessed by who? By God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And I give praise to God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. So the first thing we see here is that God fulfills his promise to Abraham, but God receives the worship. And that's how it should be. God will use the instruments of individuals. But we must always remember that God is the one who gives, receives the worship. And here, this is a doxology by Melchizedek, and it's correctly directed to God. Because here, the true priest is directing the worship to the object of the worship. Secondly, Abraham, or Abram, pays worship or homage and gives him a tenth, the spoils of war, to those who do not go to battle. And sometimes thinking of that, he, um, Melchizedek is called a king of Salem. You wonder why didn't he go to battle, but he comes out, he's a king and priest, and he comes out, and it was a custom at that time, those who didn't go to battle, if you think about uh, when David went after Abigail, and uh, there were those who were tired, and he took some of the men and pursued on. And, and he comes back, and some complain, says, hey, we went to battle. We should keep all the spoils. He says, no, those who were tired, those who couldn't make it, get the spoils as well. And so we have that as an example. And uh, he comes and gives him a tithe, or part of that pays homage, and we could look at that even as worship. And then finally, Abraham trusts God and does not receive that financial compensation that was his. He could have received some of the spoils of battle. But his response here is interesting because he says, you know, I will not take that. And even the king of Sodom directs, says, give me the people, but take the possessions yourself. He understood that you did all the work, you did the battle, but I'm asking for the people back, that you're recovered for, you know, give them their lands. And God receives worship. And I think this is important because Oftentimes, as we look at the present day in, in our worship, our worship can be seen in many different ways, both corporately as individually. Corporately, as we come to church, everything we do is about worship. When you guys, when you as a congregation, as a people of God, give offerings and gifts, we say, oh, the tenth is gone. It's just simply to be able to give, but it's to God. It helps with the ministry here. But when you come and attend, when you pray, when you participate, it is done in worship, and our goal is to direct to God. It's not about our ministries that we put on this earth. It's not about becoming the biggest or the, or the best. Our desire is that we do quality, but understand that worship, as you sing, you might not be able to sing a note, but as you participate corporately, someday you will have a heavenly voice that uh, will... And as you sing and participate in worship, it is reflected because God receives that 
and is blessed by that. When we pray, when we participate in the service. And it's, it doesn't say, the Bible says you have to worship in this way, in the sense of that. But understand, as we come together, it is all about worship. And as a church accountability, let me just place that before you as well. I'm accountable to you, so my desire is that everything reflects to God, to the Bible. And as we study out what the Word of God says, worship. And it's important that you understand who God is because he is worthy of worship as we sang um, that song last few weeks. But understanding that he will fulfill his promise to Abraham. And here Abraham trusts God in battle. He trusts God because as we look at when things are going well, he defeated everyone. Think about what would have occurred. He didn't think about, oh, am I going to lose? He went. He trusted God in battle, came back. Now everything is, he's the hero. He's the unsung hero. He could say, you know what? Laud on the praise. Here I am. But he deflects as well. And he says here, I will not take anything. And his words, he says, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to who? Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. The specific understanding, that direction, as we look at that, what he says. And even Melchizedek, who says, blessed be Abraham, the God, um, Aram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek understood as well. And so as we look at this, and we arrive at the person of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? I've always, you know, sometimes we read through, and Melchizedek we, is emphasized in the book of Hebrews. But he's also mentioned in, in Psalms. So hold your spot and go to Psalm uh, chapter 110. We are familiar with this passage because it's the Davidic Psalm. And let me just start in um, verse 1 where it says, chapter 110, This is the declaration of the Lord to my God. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back forever. You are a priest like Melchizedek. Let's go to Hebrews 7. Hold your spot there and we'll go to Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And starting in verse 1 it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. And let me just stop there because, or it continues on, it says, Here mortal men receive tithes, but 
there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. So it, he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And then it goes on in Hebrews to explain the new priesthood. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke concern, nothing concerning priesthood. And yet it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest. And then finish up verse 16 17, which says, Who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then we'll stop there. But if we go back to Genesis and look at the original occasion, event of what occurred, sometimes as we read the New Testament, well, what is the importance of Melchizedek? But we must understand where the original context, uh, the origination of Melchizedek, because the emphasis here isn't upon simply that Melchizedek was the first priest and he was the best and he was a great man. Melchizedek points us to Jesus Christ and it talks about the king and the priesthood because Jesus was, in the, it says, in the order of Melchizedek. This isn't to lift up Melchizedek. Melchizedek was specifically placed in this position for our benefit to understand what would be in the future. At that time, they didn't know it. So let me explain a little bit. Try to read first. King of Salem um, in Jerusalem, he was a priest of God. And there's a parallel relationship at that time, a priest and king. Even Abraham was called a priest and a king. A priest is an intercessor to God, but also a king, that understanding the establishment and authority. And how was Abraham a priest? First of all, he built an altar, had the circumcision, but also Abraham is also called a king. And um, as we see here, it, I believe it's back in Genesis 23, 6. But what occurs is, Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. So as we arrive at the role of Melchizedek, and this is really going to be part of understanding Melchizedek points us to Jesus Christ. There's two factors. First of all, the role of Melchizedek, he substantiates the claim that the Aaronic priesthood was replaced by Christ's priesthood, especially because it was preceded by the Melchizedek priesthood. So let me explain that a little bit. We don't deal with priesthoods. We don't have priests and priestesses, and, but if you were Jewish and Hebrew, there's an important way in the order of worship. If you were to worship, your worship would involve going to a priest who intercedes on your behalf to a holy God. And you can't approach that priesthood because we're sinful. And in the Old Testament, when there was a come to a priest, and they would do it sometimes weekly, annually, certain events, sin, you would bring a sacrifice, an offer. And you would offer that sacrifice, and then that priest would prepare in a certain way and cut it, and blood had to be shed. There had to be certain steps. And then the incense would be offered, and uh, it would say that it has been received. Intercedes on our behalf. 
But then in the New Testament, as we look at Hebrews, and even as the author of Hebrew explains the Aaronic priesthood, and he's speaking specifically to these Hebrews, to these Jewish people, we don't do sacrifices anymore because the temple is done away with because of Jesus Christ has fulfilled that priesthood. And he can do it, and, but they're saying, wait a second, he's not from the Levitical line. He's not from the line of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah. How can he fulfill that priesthood? And so what happens is goes back and says, look back in Genesis. Look back at Melchizedek. God in his infinite wisdom, in his planning, as we believe, working through earthly events, had this orchestrated and understood that, hey, Melchizedek, he was a priest, and he was in a position that was preceded by the Aaronic priesthood. And so for them to understand that, to understand, well, the importance of the tribe of Israel, the Aaronic priesthood, well, wait a second, this was established way beforehand. And Melchizedek, guess what? In the order of Melchizedek, they would have understood and accepted that because it was back at the time of Abraham, patriarch the father. But now Jesus comes, and he's not of the Aaronic line, but he's in the order of Melchizedek. And there's a superiority to the person and the position of Christ as priest and king. He's the one who intercedes on our behalf. We don't have to go to a booth. We don't have to go to someone else to receive forgiveness of sins. And that's great. We understand that for the Hebrews and Jewish as well, you know, understanding that whole sacrificial system. But for us, when we, when we sin and we do sin, you don't have to come to me and tell me your sins. You don't call me father. But you can go directly, have direct access to the heavenly father, the God of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and ask him to forgive you. And he will. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what a blessing, what a peacefulness you can have to know that you are in a right relationship with God. And that's why it's so important, because if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can know for sure that you have eternal life and have the peace that comes from God. So Melchizedek, he establishes that priesthood because he was there first. Secondly, Melchizedek had no independent significance to salvation. Melchizedek wasn't, oh, in Melchizedek there was found an early salvation. In the Old Testament, they came to salvation or eternal life the same way, through faith in Jesus Christ, in one who would be the Messiah. While they didn't understand all of the details, they trusted in one who would come. But Melchizedek, while he has no independent significance to salvation, he was an instrument that God had in place historically and used to comparatively to emphasize the future superiority of Jesus Christ, not vice versa. Because some people say, well, Melchizedek is compared to um, Christ, vice versa. What happens is Jesus Christ is the superior one. And so as we look at Melchizedek, he was instrumental in, this, in looking at the early priesthood but it's not comparing one to comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. It's comparing Melchizedek to Jesus Christ. And he was put there as an example to understand that, you know, even as David says, one who is coming, is, or John the Baptist says, one is coming who is greater than I, positionally, to look ahead. And so as we see regarding promises, God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promises to Abraham and pointed ahead to a savior, Jesus Christ. 
So that's the beautiful thing, is that one who would be coming, they'll be greater in the order of Melchizedek. So my, what I want to express to you today is that no matter what you're going through, and you think, I don't really understand or care about Melchizedek. He is an important biblical character, he, but positionally, historically, was used as an instrument. And if I can bring an application, there are things in the past that you know, bring us joy, some bring us unhappiness. But different people, different events that occur in the past, and if you were to look at your spiritual journey, if you're here and have a, a relationship with Christ, God has specifically put people, events, that have been part of the orchestration of your spiritual journey to come to Christ. Some of you may have come to Christ as a child, maybe through a parent, maybe through a Sunday school teacher. Some of you may have become as a teenager. Maybe it was at a camp. Maybe it was through another adult. Some of you as adults, maybe through a friend, a coworker, or others. But the benefit and blessing that we can see is that God keeps his promises. And God had put someone historically in your past to share Christ with you. But for us, it gives you reassurance. God is specifically active in your personal life. Sometimes we lose sight. You know, God is the God of heavens, the creator, how wonderful and powerful he is, but God is also the personal God. And, and we, we forget, oh, I, he doesn't think about me. Here I am by myself, and no one cares about me. No one calls me. My family doesn't call me, but yet God knows, and he still isn't done with you yet. He has a plan and purpose for your life. Maybe you're a young person. You think, oh, I don't know what the future holds for me. God cares about you. And, you know, as, as much as I speak to you, I speak to myself sometimes. It, it can be, you know, you wonder, what is God going to do? Life is tiresome, burdensome. But I want you to know that God will keep his promises. He brings people into our lives to encourage us, to strengthen us, to lift us up. But there's also hope because some of these promises that he's given us have not been fulfilled yet. But he will. And that's the joy of understanding our role with Christ. So God will fulfill his promises.